Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Part of what I love about doing this podcast is being able to go back into my archives and run a full interview with a filmmaker or actor I admire. Back in the 90s, it was easy to get people like John Woo or Guillermo del Toro to sit down for a relaxed, hour-long, one-on-one interview. But sadly, most of my radio stories would only use a couple minutes of the audio. Now with this podcast, I can share the full interview and allow for an in-depth conversation with some fascinating artists. For today's podcast, I turn to a 1997 interview with Canadian director David Cronenberg about his film Crash. The film just celebrated its 20th anniversary last year. The film's an adaptation of J.G. Ballard's controversial 1973 novel revolving around people who get turned on by car crashes. In the 70s, Cronenberg made low-budget horror films like Shivers, Rabid, and The Brood that gained notoriety for their gross-out effects and won acclaim for their ability to transcend genres. In the 80s, he found commercial success with an inspired remake of The Fly, but resisted the lore of Hollywood to make more personal films such as Videodrome and Dead Ringers. Then in the 90s, he made bold original films like Existence, as well as tackling seemingly unfilmable books such as William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch and J.G. Ballard's Crash. When I interviewed Cronenberg in 1997 about Crash, he gave me one of my all-time favorite quotes. Most Hollywood filmmaking these days is, is, is the cinema of comfort. The word comfort comes into even legal negotiations. Well, we can give him some comfort on that score, you know. I find that quite odd. I'm not looking to make comfortable cinema. And that's why I love Cronenberg. Anyone can pander to an audience and make comfortable cinema that makes people feel good. But not Cronenberg. He wants to make films that gnaw into your brain and unnerve you. And Crash, in particular, is most definitely not comfortable cinema. That's obvious from the opening strains of Howard Shore's eerie score. The film shook up a lot of people when it came out. The title Crash is fitting for this perverse erotic tale because not only does it refer to what excites the characters, but also because the film itself is like a car wreck that you feel compelled to look at and then feel guilty for being fascinated by. Not surprisingly, the studio was baffled by it and tried to sell it like a sexy car commercial. Beyond pleasure. Beyond pain. Beyond obsession. It's something we are all intimately involved in. Lies the rapture and the rage of Crash. Alliance Releasing invites you to fasten your seatbelt. You coming? But then the tagline was a little more esoteric. It read, love in the dying moments of the 20th century. In the film, James Spader and Deborah Unger play James and Catherine Ballard, an upscale urban couple who are in love but whose sex life has reached a dead end. Then James crashes head-on into a car, killing the other driver and leaving the man's wife, Helen, played by Holly Hunter, badly injured. 
the accident ignites New's sexual interest in James, and he discovers that Helen shares his obsession. Helen then introduces the Ballards to Vaughn, played by Elias Catias, a guru in this car crash subculture. The car crash is a fertilizing rather than a destructive event, Uh, a liberation of sexual energy, mediating the sexuality of those who have died with with an intensity that's impossible in any other form. (laughs) To to, to experience that, to to live that, that that is, uh, that's my project. What about the reshaping of the human body by modern technology? I thought that was your project. That's just a crude sci-fi concept. Crash won a special jury prize for its audacity, daring, and originality at the Cannes Film Festival in 1996. Then it had a near-fatal collision with Ted Turner, who took one look at the NC-17 film and refused to allow his New Line Cinema to release it. What may disturb people the most about Cronenberg's adaptation of Ballard's book is that he lets the story unfold without passing any moral judgment. He's like a scientist who sets an experiment in motion and then objectively and meticulously records the results. In Crash, he places a couple's inability to connect under the microscope. Incapable of direct emotional contact, the Ballards must use other people or things as intermediaries, and their desperate quest for shared intimacy proves oddly touching. In talking with Cronenberg, it's hard to believe that this articulate, soft-spoken man is the creator of some of the most disturbing films of the past few decades. Speaking from his Toronto office, Cronenberg addressed the controversy surrounding his film Crash. What attracted you to J.G. Ballard's book in the first place? In, in, a, in, a, in a strange way, and not to be evasive, um, <laughs> you, I really find that I end up making the movie to find out why I'm making the movie. You know, you, you, it's not necessarily completely clear, either emotionally or intellectually, why you're making something. It's a, usually a, a strange combination of, of things. And in the case of Crash, it was quite an odd thing, because I was sent the book by a a journalist who had interviewed me, and she sent me this book because we had talked about Ballard, and I said I hadn't read anything he had written, and she, she said, I'll send you something, and she, she wrote me a note saying, I think you should make this book into a movie. And when I read the book, I was actually, uh, I thought, you know, I, w- I don't think I would ever want to make a movie out of this book. I found it a very intense, difficult, unrelenting kind of read. And so at that point, if you had asked me, I would say, of course, I would never, you know, it would never occur to me to do that. But a couple of years later, I found myself talking to Jeremy Thomas, the producer of, of uh, The Last Emperor, and we had just done a Naked Lunch together. And he said, is there something that you want to do that you're passionate about? Because we should work together. And I said, yeah, I want to do Crash. Do you know that book? Then I thought to myself, now why did I say this? <laughs> no, I haven't, it, it never occurred to me to do this. I, I, I can't understand why I said that. So while Jeremy was getting very excited and saying, I know J.G. Ballard, I'll introduce you to him and so on. I was trying to figure out exactly why I had said that. So this is a long answer to a question. <laughs> but it's, it's not, in other words, it's not always very clear. Somehow mm-hmm. the book had started a process in me, unconsciously or subconsciously, that um, I needed actually to make the movie to, to complete. And, mm-hmm. I'm, I, and I'm still in the process of completing that. There were things, uh, the, things addressed in the book that I wanted to readdress in, in my 
in a movie. They're fairly heavy things, I have to admit, of love and sex and death. <laughs> uh, very major subjects, but with a very particular angle of the sort of the technology angle and, and the automobile angle and so on. So it's, 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 that's about as close as I can get <laughs> to answering that question. What were your concerns when you began adapting it? People say that Crash is a book that's uh, unfilmable, and they said that about the book Naked Lunch, and, and my answer to that is that all books are really unfilmable because they, the two media are so completely different. I mean, they might, might, you might make a movie that reminds people of the book or that has the tone of the book, but the, the kind of inner life that a book has, the kind of living inside somebody's head that you can do in a book, you simply can't do on screen. It, even sort of the trick of, you know, reading a voice over or something doesn't really work. It doesn't give. It doesn't work the same way. So, you know that you're going to have to reinvent the book for the screen, and you sort of have to do a little prayer that somehow it will accurately reflect or represent the book because you you are going to have to take it apart and 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 just you know it's going to be a new thing now that's always the concern you know mm -hmm. how close can you come and still make something that's really a movie and not just a kind of a wooden stiff kind of literal adaptation of of a, of a book mm -hmm. so that that really was the primary concern now the book was controversial to begin with, but uh, have you been surprised by how much controversy your film has stirred? Well, it depends where we're. You know, <laughs> I mean, the, the the controversy. I mean, it hasn't. The controversy that happened in France, for example, was just fine. I mean, it was mm -hmm. a, sort of a cinematic literary controversy, and the, the film was very successful there. It was it's just been chosen the best film of 1996 by the critics of uh, Cahiers de Cinema, which is a very prestigious mm -hmm. crit critical magazine. And that seemed to me sort of reasonable controversy. And in most countries, it has sort of been like that. But in places like the UK, it has gotten quite nuts, I think, and, and, and starts to be, you know, have more to do with English politics, actually, and the panic that the Tory government has there thinking that the Labour Party is finally going to defeat them after 17 years has more to do with that, really, than, than the movie. And and you start to see your movie being deformed in the press. You know, I mean, m most people probably think they know what the movie's like now. They've read so much about <laughs> England. And in fact, they have no idea what it's like at all. It's a sort of a kind of, a lot of the people writing about the movie, in fact, haven't actually seen it. That did surprise me. And I mm -hmm. think it took, uh, since Jeremy Thomas is English and he's one of the producers of the film, that he was quite shocked. And they're, they're, they keep apologizing to me for, you know, they keep, I, and I get letters now from people who are, who are fans of mine who who are uh, ashamed to, that that England has treated the movie this way of all places in the world so so it's sort of from one extreme to the other so as i say i knew you know mm -hmm. i knew that the movie would have to be if it were successfully representing the book of course it would be controversial on one level mm -hmm. but on on another level no it's I have been surprised by some of some countries' reactions. Yeah, I was also interested in your reaction to the way uh, Ted Turner had handled it. Well, yeah, I mean, now there, of course, what's happening in England is sort of a lot of people. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's the press, it's the politicians, it's the censors. It's a, so it's a huge thing. In the U.S., it's quite different because it's one man. Very few other people in the states have seen the film, so they haven't had even that chance to react to it. In England, it was shown at the London Film Festival, so several hundreds of people at least got to see it. Mm -hmm. There were press screenings, finally. 
in the states it was it was uh, one man having a very extreme reaction sitting alone or with a couple of people in a screening room and you know Ted Turner is I mean I don't know the man personally but he's a uh, I, I find him a very interesting and eccentric character. Quite frankly, I think he should have liked the movie if he had. <laughs> but he reacted in a uh, a very um, typical kind of way, you know, which is just to react to the surface of the film, not really to get into it, and mm-hmm. worrying about kids who will see the movie and crash cars, you know. And I was like, if kids will have sex in cars, he's saying, and I'm thinking, you know, Ted. You know where where have you been? You know there's a whole generation of Americas uh, Americans who were conceived in the back seats of 1954s. You know, I mean, I this crash the movie did not invent teenagers, sex, and cars. And in fact, there are no teenagers in the movie. This mm-hmm. is the other thing. I mean, these these are all people in their mid 30s and 40s in the movie. So it's not even about teenagers. You know, what about the Dukes of Hazard that, that play on Turner's uh, uh, TBS? I mean, you know, it it it, did, it didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, we thought it was quite a an extreme and an unbalanced reaction. Uh, unfortunately, he was able to lean on some people at uh, New Line, and and that is really that that um, delayed the release of mm-hmm. the film. So that was one very powerful man interfering where, in fact, legally he didn't even have the right to interfere. Mm-hmm. That's what happened in the states. We won't really know the real reaction in the U.S. until uh, the movie is comes out and is shown to mm-hmm. some of the critics. Did you have to make any changes to finally get it released? No. No, it will be shown uncut. Mm-hmm. It'll be the same version that was shown at the Cannes Film Festival where it won uh, a prize there. Well, one thing that's always interested me about um, depicting sex in films and stuff, I remember when Clockwork Orange had come out, to change it from an X to an R, they cut out the William Tell Overture scene, which was like the only scene where people were actually enjoying sex. Yeah. And I, no, I mean, there's no... You cannot second-guess the minds of sex. It's very strange, and it puts when you give a, a normal person the power of censorship, you get very bizarre results. Quite, mm-hmm. I think psychotic results. And if you you have uh, you know like five groups of five people, you know, censoring a film, they will none of them will come up with the same things to censor. That's the mm-hmm. other weird thing. It's there's no unanimity about what is bad or dangerous or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I have to say that if you look at the movie Crash frame by frame. You will you will not find one frame that is particularly unique. I mean, in terms of sex, or mm-hmm. it's not a violent film. It's it's really conceptual. I mean, what people are really reacting to with Crash is the conceptual aspects of it, which disturb them. Mm-hmm. And they then, because it's so unusual and it's discussing such an unusual approach to to its material, they don't really quite know how to react. So they sort of snap into the next available uh, pigeonhole. Mm-hmm. which is that it's violent, but it's not. I mean, or mm-hmm. it's pornographic, which it is not. You know, that it's that sort of thing. It really, it's a very, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's actually, I thought it was rather restrained. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and just in terms of violence, there, there are no guns, no knives, nobody is stabbed, nobody is punched, nobody is clubbed, nobody is beaten uh, in the whole movie. Nobody's mm-hmm. even slapped in the movie, you know? So where, where they get the idea, nothing that you would see in... And even a normal action picture is there in this film. So, uh, in terms of violence, so it's, mm-hmm. as I say, it's conceptual violence, not not sort of graphic screen violence that that people are are experiencing. I think. And also, I think it's there's so many uh, seemingly contradictory things going on at the same time. I mean, there is a lot of nudity and a lot of sex, but you can't qualify it as like exploitative or pornographic. No, well, and, no, because I mean, for one thing, if if it were meant to be a porno film, it would be, I think, a very poor 
<laughs> adequate porno film. You know, it's really not delivering what anybody who wants mm-hmm. from porno. So that's kind of silly right there. You know, it's, it seems that that is really a formal problem. I mean, a structural problem. You know, the movie mm-hmm. opens with three sex scenes, and people have not seen that, a movie that has three sex scenes opening. So they, except for maybe a porn film, you know, so they, it's that sort of, well, I guess it must be a porn film. Mm-hmm. But they're not really watching the movie at that point. It's it's a, they're just sort of bouncing off the surface. You know, the sex in the film is all consensual. It's mm-hmm. all at, well into adulthood. It's quite a different thing. It does require you to kind of reinvent your approach to understanding some things, which is for the people who love the film and are passionate about it, and there are a lot, that's what is so exciting about the movie. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing it kind of reminded me of was almost being like in an operating theater where you're observing something. Yes. Um, There's kind of a clinical distance or a clinical... Well, this is another interesting thing. I mean, people, I don't think the film is cold at all, but because I think it's only cold compared with what people are expecting from movies these days. Mm -hmm. People, I think, go to movies in a weird way for some kind of emotional fulfillment that they are not getting in their own lives. You know, they they want the the people crying and sobbing on the screens. They want big, um, obvious emotions. And I'm saying, no, I mean, I'm saying that's not real. You know, that's fake. I I think the last scene in Crash is very passionate. It's Mm -hmm. very passionate, but it takes you the whole movie to get to that scene. Mm -hmm. And and it's my belief, and it certainly was my intention, and I know from the reactions of a lot of people that it does work for a lot of people. That scene suddenly reveals to you that, uh, in large part, the movie is about love and is very passionate. Mm -hmm. But you you don't it's not you don't get it immediately right away everything you know thrown at you and 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 sort of in push button style so exactly you know exactly where you are all the time and who you're supposed to love and hate and mm-hmm. who you're supposed to feel the movie doesn't do that because it's trying to get at something that's more subtle and oblique than that but uh, having said that i i will say that for me in a way uh, a movie is like an experiment that you do in a lab i mean it's it's you you are seeing what happens if you say, well, what if there were people who really did this? What if there are people who really felt this and who not only felt it, but actually carried it through? Uh, It might not be something that you want in your own life, but it might be something that gives you some kind of reflection on your own life that that can be uh, illuminating, instructive, can be consoling even. And so... In, in a sense, yeah, every movie is kind of like an experiment, you know, where you, mm-hmm. you, you sort of see what happens. Well, I thought it was interesting in uh, one of the scenes in the background, they're watching like a TV documentary about fish, I think. Or, Fishing, yeah. And in a sense, it almost seemed like this was kind of, in a similar way, it was kind of like examining this in kind of a non-judgmental way, but, you know, depicting this is what it's like, this is how they function. Well, yeah, I mean, in the same way that you wouldn't be judgmental about fish, but you're judgmental <laughs> about people. I, I, you know, one critic said to me that the thing that disturbed him most about the movie was its lack of a moral stance. And I said, well, you know, in a way that is the subject of the film, is what mm-hmm. if you accept that you do not have a moral stance and that if you're going to have one, you're going to have to invent it. It's a very existentialist approach, really, to life. It's saying... Mm-hmm. Let's accept that there are no absolutes, even the things that we want to think are absolutes, like sex and emotion and love and stuff. And I'm saying that these things are not absolutes. They are reinvented constantly from time to time and culture to culture. And 
for me to impose a morality on the movie by saying, now watch this, this guy is, he's bad, he's doing a bad thing, and we all know it. It, it would completely subvert what the, the purpose of the film is mm-hmm. if one is to come to some conclusion that you could call moral or ethical or whatever, then it's for the audience to generate it, to form it. I'm not imposing it. And that is also not normal for films these days, but I I think that in most movies, the moral stance is a is, is an artifice. It's fake. I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of a, it's a, a narrative device. You give your character some outrage about something so that he can get angry and do something. But you know when you watch these movies that no one who made the movie really cares about this. You know, it's just a device. You know, mm-hmm. nobody's really passionate about that. It's just a subject to, to hang a hook on. And I'm saying I won't be that false. I will... Mm-hmm. I will not be that false. I won't inject that into it. I'm going to let my characters do what they want to do because I really want to see where they go on their own without me mm-hmm. interfering with them. Well, I think audiences sometimes have a problem when there is no sense of like a, a moral judgment from the director because they don't know how to react and yeah. they're like, they feel uncomfortable making the judgment on their own. It's asking yeah. them to do a little more work. Well, it's, it's also, but I mean, it's also treating them maturely. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of treating them like adults. And, and quite honestly, I mean... There is a huge tradition in, in art of all kinds of moral instruction, but most of the best art is much more ambiguous than that. It, mm-hmm. it suggests several things at once, and a lot of art is questioning rather than instructing. You know, there's a difference between a sermon and a passionate speech, you know, it's, it's, and, and I've never been very good at sermonizing. <laughs> I, I tend to see many sides to everybody's argument. That's why I'm not a very good negotiator. <laughs> Because I, I'm just as likely to say, you know, he's right about that, <laughs> which is not good when you're negotiating, especially your fee for a movie. But, <laughs> so I bring that to the movie, and uh, and to me that is the most interesting kind of art. It, it's it's it, because you're examining things that are mysterious and and primal and essential, and they're almost beyond what you would call morality and beyond politics at the same time. One of the things I really liked in your film was uh, your use of sound. How do you approach using sound in your films? Well, um, sound involves music and effects and dialogue, and I, involve, I, I try to integrate all of those things. I mean, the, the, the guys who are doing the sound, the, the dialogue and the effects, and Howard Shore, the composer of the music, all worked very hard together. So sometimes the dialogue is the effect, is the music, you know? And, mm-hmm. for example, if you look at the car wash scene, there is no music. It, 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 but but Howard was involved in creating and orchestrating the sound effects of the car wash, which becomes sort of the musical score. I think that sound actually is what adds the third dimension to movies. It gives you depth. It gives you the world beyond the frame. You hear things that, that are not seen within the frame. So it's extremely important. And I never go for strictly naturalistic uh, effect. I want, you know, sound effects have emotion. They can have emotion and they can have meaning. So I try to get all, all three of those elements to integrate with each other. The uh, car wash seems to almost become like a living, breathing being that's watching yeah. them. Yeah. Well, sort of voyeurism is, is mm-hmm. definitely an aspect of the piece. Uh, People say, talk to me about what technology is doing to us. And I say, well, what do you mean doing to us? Technology is us. 
We are it. We, we, we have created it. It is an absolute reflection of human will. It's, it's, a, it's the embodiment of human will and, the, and a reflection of human creativity. And, and uh, for the car wash to have a sort of human uh, mm-hmm. presence makes perfect sense. You know? It was just odd because it seemed like the, the car wash itself was more of a voyeur than the technicians that were there, like, scrubbing down the car. Yeah, they don't notice. I mean, they're completely oblivious. Just like in the, in the airport when, mm-hmm. when they have this mad, passionate moment of sex, there are people walking around in the background, and they just they don't notice. Somebody said to me, you know, it's not very good. You, you, you didn't notice those people walking around in the background. You should have been alone up there. I said, what you? I said, we hired every one of them. That was one of the few times I let my AD run the extras because uh, I wanted it obvious that they were so, so isolated from society now and so into what was happening themselves that they were oblivious to the possibility that people would watch them or discover them or something. So at that moment, that was the one reason, one one of the few times that I allowed there to be a lot of extras around. One of the things that interested me, too, was the way you uh, increasingly isolate them. It almost feels like they're moving in a parallel universe to the real world. They're, they're doing Certainly things... Certainly that was the way the book mm-hmm. felt, too. I mean, what, I've, what I did was what I think Ballard did as well, but maybe it's done less often in movies, is simply to say, I will not put anything in the film that doesn't interest me. I won't do anything just because it would be realistic. I'm not interested in the police, really. I'm not interested in the police. Are they aware of what's going on? Are they after them? Are they seeing them? You know, are they searching for them? And it was the same in the book. I mean, the, the police exist sort of almost in the far ground, in the periphery. You don't, it, it's, they're not important because that's not what the movie's about. Uh, it's 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 not about the commission of a crime in a society. It's quite something else. So, likewise, you know, I had an assistant director who always had you know fifty or hundred extras to throw on the street to make the streets come alive, and I kept saying, no, I don't want to see anybody. You know, I'm not interested in those extras. I'm not interested in their reaction to things. I'm not interested in whether they notice that there's this naked woman in this car. You know, I don't, I'm, I don't care. That's going to be a distraction. Well, in other words, I was simplifying it. I was distilling it to, to a, a very intense essence. And that was my approach to, to, to the film, which is why you get the, the effect that you just mentioned. That was especially true, I thought, in the scene where they stop at the freeway crash. And it's like, you know, they're posing... Catherine's sitting in the yeah. car and taking the pictures, and you think it's like they're just moving in two different worlds and not even seeing each other. Well, that's right. That's right. I mean, in fact, you could probably get away with that in, a, in an accident like <laughs> that. But, yeah, I mean, they're, they're sort of slipping by each other. And, of course, what these people are doing is trying to create a parallel universe. I mean, they're trying to rewrite the laws of of sexuality and of love and, and everything else. And uh, if you really were to do that completely you would be in a kind of parallel universe. You wouldn't be relating to other people. Mm-hmm. They were relating to you. And unless you had a group who were with, was with you on that sort of uh, adventure of reinvention, you would be quite alone. I hadn't read the book, but I understand you, um, the James Dean sequence where they reenact the crash. Now, that wasn't in the book? That's, that's correct. And what made you uh, add that in? Well, in the book, there are two things. There's Vaughn is actually stocks Elizabeth Taylor in the book. He, he, he's obsessed with Elizabeth Taylor, mm-hmm. the film star, and he wants to have a crash with her, and he almost manages it. 
And the other thing is that there are scenes, there is a scene where they go to attend a recreation of traffic accidents, but just sort of normal traffic accidents, not mm-hmm. sort of stunt driving accidents, uh, not not of anybody famous. Although they do talk about it, it, recreating Jane Mansfield's crash and so on, I think. Mm-hmm. And James Dean is mentioned. But I didn't want to use this sort of stalking Elizabeth Taylor uh, thing for, for several reasons. And one, one is that Elizabeth Taylor isn't even Elizabeth Taylor anymore. And Vaughn is a stalker. I mean, he, it, I, I'm calling him a stalker because you haven't read the book. You wouldn't mm-hmm. think that word necessarily the way it's written. But on screen, I think he would be seen just as another psychopathic celebrity stalker. And I didn't. I thought that would diminish Vaughn, uh, make it easy to dismiss him as some kind of psychotic. And, and I, I really thought it would distort what I wanted to do with him as a character. So for those two reasons, I kind of just dismissed that element. And my solution, though, to replace it was to have the car crash thing involve another Hollywood icon, mm-hmm. uh, but a but a dead one. How did you approach shooting the crashes? Well, you know, somebody said to me, your car crashes aren't very realistic. <laughs> I said, oh, no? He said, yeah, there's none of those slow motion things where they flip over in slow motion and you see it from five different angles. I said, to you, that's realistic? <laughs> and I asked him if he'd ever been in a car crash. He said, no. So I think what it was obvious that I was defining myself against the Hollywood action tradition. Mm-hmm. It was obvious I would have to because I was really faced with action movie logistics, you know, having sort of 35 stunt drivers and 35 stunt cars on a rainy road at night and so on. But I wasn't doing an action movie. So I had to use sort of restraint. And I did no slow motion. I did no multiple angles. I did... You know, no huge explosions and mm-hmm. cars flipping over and so on. I tried to keep it very abrupt and brutal, the way car crashes are, and really deal more with the aftermath of the car crash, which is more to the point than the, the car crash itself. And so that was uh, conceptually, and uh, that was basically the way I went. Well, it also seemed, too, like when Vaughn's following Catherine, it's also like a flirtation. I mean, every little bump absolutely. is... <laughs> oh, yeah, Absolutely. I liked her attention to detail in the film, just mundane things like how she gets her stockings off in the car when they try to have sex. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you see, this is the thing. I mean, you have to work that stuff out, you know, <laughs> choreographical. I mean, it's it's an actor's thing, you know, but it, it, it ends up affecting everything else. It's like, well, what is she wearing? Um, how realistic is it? Well, if she is wearing pantyhose, then, or if she's not, is she wearing if underwear? Is she not? How does she get it off? You know, we had to work all that stuff out, obviously. But, I mean, intense attention to detail is is really what filmmaking is all about. I mean, you can really tell a movie where people did not take the time, you know. Mm-hmm. That that goes for any movie, really. The scene where Catherine and uh, James talk, where she asks him about whether or not he's interested in Vaughn, mm-hmm. the language she uses is very clinical, yeah. and I thought it was very interesting that... It actually makes you in some ways feel more uncomfortable absolutely. that it's clinical than if it was absolutely. slang. Yeah, absolutely. That is, and it's done that way in the book, too. I mean, there's a, the, the sex in the book is all described in clinical, clinical terms. There are no street terms for anything. No love, you know, cutesy love terms for for anything, for parts of the body or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot, most of the dialogue, most of it is is transcribed right from the book. And and it, is, it does have well maybe maybe it isn't most yeah I think it is most of the dialogue and um, I mean I've, there are a few scenes that I've written but it, in the same style 
that is, I think, exactly. I mean, that scene would be quite a different scene if 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 it were played differently with language mm-hmm. and 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 exactly the same visually. But that that is the strange dissonance that that there is in the book that I was looking for on screen. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I, I I mean, I think if she had, if you just changed that dialogue, people would sort of relax a lot, even if she's saying basically the same thing. Yeah, I think uh, you I think hear it what, different, completely yeah. differently and yeah. pay more attention to it in some ways. Yeah, that's right. Um, and a lot of the the sexual encounters, the people seemed almost more in touch with the objects around them than with that's, the other people. Yes, that's right. And But what was interesting is the, the one scene that seemed to be the most um, tender or intimate between the two actually was between James and Catherine after she's had sex with Vaughn and she's all bruised. And there's actually, they don't have a sexual encounter, but that was like one of the more tender yes. uh, scenes in the film. Yeah, because displacement is, is a lot of what the film is about, which which is one possible feature of fetishism. But I wasn't really sort of so much making a comment on fetishism as the inability that, that seems to be growing um, for people to make direct contact. They seem to have to do it via the medium of something else. Uh, or someone else. And so, you know, when they invoke Vaughn into their bed in that scene that we were talking about, and then, and that seems to make sex possible between them, but mm-hmm. only with Vaughn there sort of verbally as an inter- and in their imaginations as an intermediary. Because to be having sex directly with emotion and direct emotion seems impossible for them. And so every, in, in each scene, there's this strange displacement, you know of people's emotions onto other people, other things. And it can only, it's an attempt at the end of the movie for the two people to try and find some way, however bizarre, to come back directly into contact with each other. Do you see a common thread running through all of your films? I don't see threads. (laughs) Could you describe? (laughs) I see the cloth. I can't see the threads for the cloth. Analytically, I mean, see, of course, when when I'm, put in the position of being a critic of my own films or an analyst, um, then I'm just another analyst and my analysis can be only as good or as bad as anybody else's. Uh, what I, My assumption is that there will be connections amongst all my films because I'm making them and they will all, I don't get interested in most films. I mean, I get sent a lot of scripts and so on and I find them completely uninteresting to make. You know, maybe there's something you might want to watch, but there's a special kind of switch that gets flipped when there's something that 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 is exciting on that very deep creative level and i know therefore that my films will all have real connections amongst themselves and uh i don't have to when i'm making a film i don't analyze it or think about it i don't think Mm -hmm. this is just like that or oh yeah this will be good because it's just like the theme you know a lot of critics i find confuse their critical process with my filmmaking process. Mm-hmm. They think that you make a film the way you might think it out while you're analyzing it as a critic. Completely different. It comes from a completely different place entirely. But, you know, I've read some stuff about my films. I don't like to read too much of it. But, uh, you know, there are obvious connections, I think, amongst them all. Well, it seems like they move almost in kind of a logical progression, and and you seem to always be refining your, your style. Well, that would be nice. I mean, in terms of... It, when, you, you know, you hope that you get better and better and more mature and certain and whatever. It doesn't mean you can't make a bad movie and then go on to make another good movie. But whether it's really a progression or it's some kind of not really linear at all, but kind of 
I think it's more like a spiral or a helix, you know. You look down on a helix and it looks it looks like a circle. But when you look at it from the side, it's not, you know. You're mm-hmm. not really it, you're you're coming around, but you're also rising up. So it's not an absolute repetition at all. And and uh, it's sort of what I'm doing sort of feels like that to me. And I tr- I try not to put restrictions on it um, intellectually. You know, I, I try not to say, well, now, I mean, after I did the Dead Zone, a lot of people were saying, oh, well, he's now left sci-fi behind and horror, and he's he, he's not using effects and bloodiness and stuff. And then I did The Fly, you know, the very next movie, because I don't I don't even think in those categories. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can't really. I mean, my next movie might well be a sci-fi movie. It looks like it might be. And I don't think of, I think that's really, that aspect of it is sort of a marketing problem mm-hmm. rather than a creative problem. You know, if it's a, is it a genre film, is it sci-fi, or is it a sort of, what, a naturalistic tragedy or whatever? You know, that, that really doesn't affect how you make the film. Well, your films always seem to kind of transcend whatever genre they seem to be starting in. Well, you're very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice if it were, were, you know, I certainly, as I say, I mean, the, you know, I've said this before, you'll forgive me, but I mean, you do feel like you've got a plug and you're sort of looking for the socket, you know, when you find the socket and you plug in, you get the juice and you have the energy and uh, it doesn't seem to matter what the genre is, you know, so underneath all the other stuff, if the plug is there in the socket, you've, you're, 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 you're connected with your source, you know, you really, you are making a real movie for yourself. You began in what would probably be called low-budget horror. Was that a hard stigma to shake? I mean, was it hard to kind of get people to see your films as something other than that? Mm, well, I never really tried to shake it. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it's, you know, I only, I only dislike it when it's used dis- dismissively. You know, mm-hmm. when they say horror meister or something like that, you know, you know that they're trying to dismiss you. So they're using it as an insult. But in, in, in real terms, I, I don't, I love the genre, you know. I mean, sci-fi and horror were very exciting to me as a as a as a kid, reading sci-fi magazines and so on and seeing movies. And I, people said, "Oh, it was a brilliant sort of career strategy to start off in low-budget horror because you know that's where you could make a low-budget horror movie that would actually make some money." And I said, "You know, it's, it's absolutely luck. I mean, the first script I wrote, that's what came out mm-hmm. when I was in." public school writing short stories i wrote horror stories you know i mean sci-fi i mean you know they it was the same stuff it's natural to me it was very natural for me i was actually just it was just luck that it was the one place where you could sort of start with no money but and people would take you sort of seriously i think wes craven who's just got a hit now scream uh, said that i was one of the few people he knows who who made more than one horror film at the beginning of his career, but still seems to be able to make not horror films if he wants to. You know, Coppola made his first film mm-hmm. horror film. Many, many people, but once they had done it, they went on to never do it again. You know, I've never distanced myself from the genres at all. I mean, it's it's if 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 the movie is good in a really deep way, it will transcend its genre. You know, whether it's Chinatown transcending the cheap pulp fictions. Mm-hmm. detective uh, movie or or something else i mean it's uh, transcendence is is in a sense what art is all about you know mm-hmm. what kind of films did you see as a kid growing up well as a uh, i saw everything 
I mean, uh, as a little kid, you know, I mean, there was no television, I have to say. I to admit it, but it was pre-TV, you know, so every Saturday you'd go to the movies with your friends and you'd see whatever was there. It would be cowboy movies, uh, Hopalong Cassidy, or sort of a, a cowboy movies. That was a serious genre at the time, so you might see Shane, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might see Burt Lancaster and Ten Tall Men, you know, action pirate movie. Um, of course, you'd see a lot of cartoons. You'd see sci-fi. I mean, really, just everything that was available at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, I have told this story before. You'll forgive me again. But it, across the street from the theater that I went to, which was called The Pylon, there was a an Italian, a cinema that only showed Italian movies. It was called The Studio. And it was because the uh, section of Toronto that I lived in had a lot of Italian immigrants, enough to sort of support an Italian-language-only movie house. And uh, I remember coming out of seeing some, you know, Hopalong Cassidy movie or something, and noticing across the street, this was in the afternoon on a Saturday, grown men and women coming out of this theater crying, men and women. Mm -hmm. This was extraordinary to me as a kid. I couldn't, I'd never thought, that the, a movie could make adults cry, you know. And when I went, I went across the street to see what the film was, and it was La Strada, Fellini's film. And that was really when I it first occurred to me that a movie could have power like that, you know, that that could could affect grown adults, you know, because up to then it was a kid thing. And that I think uh, I, I you know that that moment is very clear in my mind. So it obviously had that some some serious meaning for me. One collaboration you had that was very interesting was with Clive Barker. Mm-hmm. Would you uh, ever consider working with him again and maybe working as a writer and director with him? Or, Well, Clive is, but Clive is his own writer-director, you know. No, I meant that he would write and you would direct something. I don't think so, because no. it, it, the stuff that Clive's approach to, you know, what he does is so different from mine. Mm-hmm. It was even apparent on Nightbreed when I was making suggestions, you know, about the script, and I thought, you know, Clive, this doesn't really make any sense. He didn't care that it didn't make any sense, you know? and I did. I like sort of the magic, the, the logic of madness is, we both are interested in madness, but I, I'm particularly intrigued by the logic of madness, the rationale of madness that we that we make. So that I'm interested in Descartes' theories, you know, philosophy, because it's sort of so logical, it's insane, and I and I, I like that. Clive is totally into this uh, it, uh, completely sort of invented spiritual other world stuff, which I actually don't like. I mean, I don't mean that I don't like his stuff. I mean, I, but it's not something as a as a director that I would really be interested in doing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It just doesn't resonate for me in that sort of socket and plug way, you see. So the mm-hmm. chances that Clive would write something that I would be interested in directing are slim, just because of that. Would you act for him again? Oh, of course. <laughs> he, was, he was lovely as a director. He was he was great, just great fun, great set. You know, he was, I think he was a little overwhelmed on that film because it, it grew. It was supposed to be quite a small film, and then it became quite a big, heavy-duty effects film. And I think he was a little overwhelmed. Not that he ever showed it, because he was always incredibly sweet and funny on the set, you know. So, uh, no, I like uh, Clive. I consider a friend, you know, and and uh, and I think he's extremely talented. Uh, one of my personal favorites of yours is Dead Ringers. Mm-hmm. How do you look back on that film now? Because it's been over ten years. Has yeah. It? Well, I don't. I don't <laughs> have to look back on it. Uh, in fact, it was very odd and painful in a weird way for me to 
have to look at it again for the release of the laser disc, and I had to sort of watch it again and sort of talk about things mm-hmm. as I was watching it. I don't really like looking at my old films, um, particularly. It's not something I do unless I have a reason to do it. In fact, I was just looking at Videodrome, thinking in terms of maybe a possible laser release of that. I don't know why. I mean, it's very hard for me to see my movies as movies, you know, because in a weird way, they're a documentary of what happened that day. You know? I mean, I remember how I was feeling the day I did that shot and, and how the actor was feeling and the trouble I had with the effects or the lighting or God knows what, you know. So I can't really experience the film. And so it's just kind of strange in that way. I mean, you can't enjoy it as just a viewer. Yeah, it's impossible. I mean, you'd, you know, in a way, you'd love to be able to do that so that you could kind of objectively assess your film. Certainly, the time that you would most want to do that is when you're editing it, you know. Uh, and yet, that's the time you're absolutely, actually, the least objective in a weird way. You know, you, you sort of try to surprise yourself. Uh, that's why I have my editor do a, a, a an assembly of the film without my involvement. Mm-hmm. because I, I want to forget what I shot, so I'm surprised by it. And and uh, so, But you never, I think it's impossible really to see a, your film the way someone else can just walk in off the street and see it. You'll never have that experience. You're really shot out of your own films in a weird way. Uh, one thing that I see kind of running through your films is that um, a lot of your characters seem caught up in, it's not religion, but like their own, creating their own kind of religion, their own kind of mm-hmm. belief system. Yeah, well, I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm, I'm, I've come to realize that I'm nothing but a card-carrying existentialist. So, I mean, I think it's absolutely true. I'm, I'm a complete atheist, and I don't. I simp- I believe that we invent the world. I mean, we've invented uh, our whole belief structure. Or I think there is no morality, or there are no, there's no morality in the universe except what we invent. I think the universe is completely amoral. Uh, it doesn't exist, and it's a human concept and we invent it and we constantly reinvent it so the whole sartrean thing you know a man is condemned to be free and all of that stuff uh i buy it i think it's an actual a, a very accurate description of of human life as it really is and it's both exhilarating and terrifying at the same time the responsibility is terrifying the the responsibility to invent a reality for yourself which I think people do, but they, they don't want to know about it. So they, they sort of subsume themselves in one church or some religion or, or you know, whether it's politics or whatever, belief system. Uh, it really is a human invention, uh, and which is becomes a reality. Um, I had read that Martin Scorsese was afraid to meet you. Um, do you find that people sometimes confuse your films with what you're like? Well, certainly when I was making horror films almost, you know, uh, exclusively. I mean, he had seen, I think, Shivers and Rabbit and maybe The Brood. Here's the guy who made Taxi Driver, you know, and he's afraid to meet me. I thought that was kind of ironic. <laughs> and and it shows you that uh, even a, a creative person who should know better doesn't really, you know. I mean, listen, it's it's ironic. You read something in the press, and it's your interview, and you're outraged because you've been misquoted and everything's been distorted. Then you flip the page to the next page, reading about somebody else, and you believe everything you read. <laughs> it's sort of like that. I mean, Marty should know that you are not your films in, 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 in terms of personal presence and social behavior. Um, in fact, it's probably more likely to be the opposite. I mean, everybody knows that comedians are hideous people. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> and very happy and very bitter, you know. <laughs> so it stands to reason that people who make dark films are, in fact, rather happy-go-lucky people. <laughs> and, um, of course, as soon as we met each other, he, we knew, he knew, you know, that it was, mm-hmm. there was certainly nothing to be afraid of, and we've been, you know, we've been friends since. But, uh, yep, that's it. <laughs> the, the relationship of, a, of an artist to his work is a very complex one, and isn't, there's no consistency from person to person either. So uh, you just don't know what you're going to get. I read a quote of yours, and maybe it's not true, but <laughs> where you said that you like to show the unshowable and speak the unspeakable. Is that something you still find true? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess I was in my sort of phrase-making phase. <laughs> You know, you 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 are looking for truths that go deeper than the surface reality that we are all presented with. I mean, I think really, I'm, I think it was intended to suggest that I was going to make really hideous movies that would be very scandalous. But I wasn't really meaning that, of course. I was meaning that, like the fool who says, you know, unloads all the family secrets at the birthday party, and whom nobody really likes for doing it necessarily, but in a way, somebody has to say it. It's sort of like that. That's what you feel like. You know, you're the, you, you are, you want the truth, no matter how painful or distressing it might be, and mm-hmm. uh, you have a compulsion to show it to people and share it with people, even though they might not want you to. And, mm-hmm. and to me, that's the most interesting, exciting kind of art. It's, it's. You might find something really quite positive, you know, not necessarily negative, but something mm-hmm. that's that's uh, not noticed or hidden for some reason. I think, you know, that's that's the impulse. I mean, if everything were right out there, if everything were understood, there would be no need for art, you know, if everybody mm-hmm. knew everything. So you, you, I tend to not be interested in just replications of the same stuff that everybody knows, which really seems to be what most Hollywood filmmaking is about. Mm-hmm. I mean, most Hollywood filmmaking these days is... is is the cinema of comfort. You know, they, the word comfort comes into even legal negotiations. Well, we can give them some comfort on that score. You know, I find that quite odd. I'm not looking to make comfortable cinema. There's enough of that around, and it's the easiest and safest stuff to do. And I, somebody's got to do the other stuff. Well, I think I talked to one director who described it. He said all films have the same theme in Hollywood. It's that everything's going to be okay. Well, I think that's, that's quite true. That's right, true, and and even when, and and how many movies you might see that start with a very tough premise, and you realize it's all bluster because they cop out on it long before the end of the movie. Of course, I mean a movie like Crash doesn't. I think that's another thing that bothers people is it has the audacity to carry through on its presence right to the bitter end. Do you consciously feel like you like to push things just beyond the point where you think the audience can take it? No, not really. I I actually feel. See, because I have my ideal audience in mind, which is an audience that that wants that experience, and and therefore, they in fact would be frustrated if I didn't do that. I know I'm not really a provocateur. I don't think of myself in those terms. You know, I'm not very. I don't think of myself as combative or confrontational at all. I mean, I've never met all all Oliver Stone, but from his movies and you know interviews and stuff, you might get the impression that he enjoys that kind of combat. You know, I don't really. If everybody who saw Crash said, I adore this movie, I would be happy, I swear to you. (laughs) Oh, darn, I failed because I didn't didn't make them crazy, you know. If they said they adored it, I would assume that they got it and that it would be fine with me. One thing I wanted to ask about Crash also was, um, do you see that the characters in 
in pursuing these crashes and stuff are hoping that technology is going to save them, that they're trying to cheat death by surviving a car tra- car crash and... Oh. Uh, no, I don't. No. Think that, no, I don't think that. I, I think I think they do experience technology as an expression of mm-hmm. of their humanness and and are willing to embody it in a more direct way, um, but not necessarily to save them. Because I don't, mm-hmm. you know, there's. I mean, nobody's talking about cryogenics and living mm-hmm. a thousand years old or anything like that. No, I, I think they're really. It's it's trying to penetrate the sort of surface of reality to the real reality beyond you know we always have that feeling that it's it's real but something more real beyond it you know and i think that's where they're going more than mm-hmm. they're looking for technology as a as a, a way to you know let's say cheat death or whatever you had made a film in the late 70s called fast company about race yeah. card yeah. drivers did that in any way come up when you were making this film I mean, did you f- was there any connection that you felt in terms of the way you shot some of the stuff in that film well, it's, actually yes because uh, a lot of people that uh, I've worked with since um, in particular Carol Spear my production designer that was the first movie that I did that she worked on so in a way and and but but just just in I, I certainly did think of a few things that we'd done in that movie which was a very low budget movie but I put a camera on a funny, what's called a funny car, which is a huge, fire-breathing, monstrously hot racer. And I put a camera on, I don't think anybody had actually put a movie camera on one of those before. Um, we kind of burned a few magazines and stuff. Um, uh, now you can see video cameras on them any day of the week watching sports on television. You know, they do that all the time. But uh, so mm-hmm. there were a few things in terms of camera mounts and stuff. Uh, and I do have this history, as I say, with my production designer. You know. But beyond that, you know, there's not much connection. I mean, that was quite a kind of a gentle B movie about mm-hmm. drag racing, and which I'm quite fond of. It's, nobody's ever seen it, but it's quite. I, I, I'm quite fond of it. It, it had, uh, strangely enough, uh, John Saxon, who's the star of that movie, mm-hmm. visited me on the set of Crash. <laughs> it was the most bizarre thing because I hadn't seen him since that time. And he was in town for some reason in Toronto, and he he appeared on the set, and it was really great to see him because we had gotten along very well. Do you have another project lined up right now that you're working on? Yeah, I I, I do. I have uh, I've written two scripts. One is called Red Cars, which is about racing. I have to say, <laughs> but from quite a different perspective. That would be maybe more directly related than than Fast Company, but. Uh, um, that's about Formula One racing in 1961 for Ferrari, but it's you know it's as you might expect it's not a sports movie. Exactly. Whether I'll ever get to make that script, I don't know. So there are some people interested in there's some problems involved in getting it happening. Uh, the other one that might go a lot sooner is called Existence, which is spelled Somali, capital X, small I S T E N, and capital Z. Existence, and that is uh, a sci-fi movie that I think will get made this year. So I'm, we'll shoot it this year, I think. It looks pretty good. Mm. Probably going to be my next film. <laughs> I have a trivia question. I don't know if it's trivia, but someone who watched Crash with me was very curious as to why Catherine uh, was so resistant to revealing her breasts. Um, <laughs> well, she she, she, she says this kind of reveals parts of it. Part. So, I mean, it's kind of... But it, she always seems to have something kind of pillow or her hand or oh, sure. well i don't know i mean i'm trying to think if that's in the uh she's because because she's the, i think the idea was that she's 
she is in in some ways totally uninhibited and mm-hmm. in other ways very reluctant to give any of herself away mm-hmm. you know so she's she's sort of portioning it out i mean i think that was the idea you know she doesn't make eye contact with anybody in the movie ever and that was very deliberately a performing choice you know that we talked about so it's 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 basically that i mean it was just what can we do sexually that is because i think that's more that's kind of disturbing too you know it's a strange combination of being uninhibited and being completely inhibited which Catherine is 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 in a way it was just funny because after we had watched the film my friend just said what was it was she like deformed or something did she have a scar there uh, no no <laughs> scar but you you see quite actually you do actually end up seeing quite a bit of her breast yes. really but you just don't see her sort of just you know it was that total abandon and freedom that you would have if you did that uh, we wanted to hold something back that was really the that was the reason Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate your generosity. It's a pleasure. Thanks Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was Canadian filmmaker David Cronenberg from a 1997 interview I did. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm working on delivering the show on a more regular bi-weekly schedule with a short break at the holidays. You can follow me on Twitter at Cinebeth, and please like the Cinema Junkie Facebook page to stay up to date on all the podcasts. Coming up for Christmas, a podcast on horror movies as spiritual practice. Cinema Junkie is also a proud sponsor of the Midnight Movies at Landmark's Ken Cinema, where you can find Tommy Wiseau's The Room this Saturday at midnight. Then you can experience The Disaster Artist in all its glory. And please, if you plan to see The Room, only do so at a midnight show or another screening of the film in a theater. Do not, I repeat, do not watch it alone at home on DVD. It's just not the same experience, and you can't appreciate just how bad it is by yourself. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.